they were waiting for an occasion that they could blame it on. So sure enough, a young man carrying two buckets of water, going to the only bathroom downtown that blacks were allowed to use. So he stepped in the elevator, and the elevator wasn't lined up. So he stumbled against the elevator operator. She screamed, and that was the incident they were waiting for. They said, well, we're going to have a, a lynching tonight. That was Tulsa Race Massacre survivor Dr. Olivia J. Hooker. We heard from her in the last episode, and we'll hear from her again a little later in this one. In partnership with the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, I'm Nia Clark, and this is Black Wall Street, 1921. Over the years, there's been some speculation as to whether the Tulsa Race Massacre was a premeditated or planned attack. Some have asserted that the allegations against a 19-year-old Dick Rowland, a black man, accusing him of assaulting the white 17-year-old teen Sarah Page, was simply the excuse the mob needed to execute an operation that was conceived well before the massacre to expel black Tulsans from Greenwood. Indeed, some even go so far as to suggest that the massacre was really a scheme to run African Americans out of Tulsa and use the land they built Black Wall Street on to rebuild more profitable property. Whether or not this is the case remains and may always be a point of speculation. But I thought it was important to shine a larger light on this theory because it's been mentioned by a good number of voices you've heard in this podcast, including experts, survivors, and their descendants. So let's listen to what some of them had to say about this theory. First, Dr. Olivia J. Hooker, who you heard from in the beginning of this podcast and in the previous episode. Dr. Hooker was a survivor of the massacre and went on to become the first Black woman to enlist in the Coast Guard before becoming a distinguished psychologist and later a psychology professor at Fordham University. I guess the powers that be on the other side of town felt, well, we've got to get those people down here and get their consumers' money, and they're buying everything in their own neighborhood, so we better move them out. So people kept whispering to my dad that their employers, people who worked in service, said their employers were stockpiling all kinds of weapons and dynamite and stuff, and so... We knew something was going to happen. Next, Reuben Gant, executive director of the John Hope Franklin Center for Reconciliation, which is located in present-day Tulsa's Greenwood neighborhood. We heard from him in episode three of the podcast. This is what he says about the possibility of the massacre being a premeditated attack. Thank you. 
you start to see groups in Tulsa like the Knights of Liberty and the American Protective League, which were sort of like vigilante groups that were essentially sanctioned by local law enforcement to carry out the responsibilities of law enforcement officers. And then you start to see the emergence of the Ku Klux Klan, which had a lot of power in Oklahoma and Tulsa. And how did all of this contribute to the racial tensions that we saw boil over when the massacre occurred? Well, I would think that there was an excuse for the massacre, which was the claim that a black man accosted a white woman in an elevator. But that it was all an attempt to grab land. It was a land grab opportunity for whites because of this prime real estate that's in the middle of a robust commerce and trade that whites wanted to control the land. So rather than just pillage and come in here and, and unlawfully, so to speak, acquire the land, they thought they could do that by destroying it. And you believe that the Tulsa Race Massacre wasn't really based on the allegations against Dick Rowland. It was more an attempt to run Black Tulsans out of Greenwood. That's correct. The most important word that you used was an allegation. Never proven. Charges never filed. The accused let out of jail, free, but still yet, this devastation, destruction of 35 square blocks, 40 acres of land, and displacement of 8,000 families occurred. And then immediately after that, the city passes an ordinance that says new construction had to be in fire-retarded material. And that was an attempt to not allow Blacks to rebuild their businesses and their homes because it would be economically unfeasible to do it, or that is what was thought. No insurance claims were honored because of the use of the word riot. And in insurance policies, there's an anti-riot clause. So no, no insurance claims were paid. So the, the entire thought being you know, Blacks are not going to be able to retain their properties. And henceforth, we can come in and acquire it, we being white people. And that was the whole effort or intent behind the massacre was the land grab. Has your organization ever addressed your assertion that the massacre wasn't really about Dick Rowland and Sarah Page, that it was more an attempt to run Black people out of Tulsa and seize their land? Has, has there ever been larger discussions in the community about that? It's an ongoing discussion. It always occurs. And that, that is one of the most important things that we stress when we have an opportunity to share the story of Greenwood. It, wasn't about a 
interaction or or an occurrence that happened between a black man and a white woman. It was about wanting to acquire the land in which black folk lived. We we talk about that all the time. And that sort of contributes to or is perhaps a result of the idea and the belief that black people should not be able to own land should not be able to thrive in society alongside uh, Caucasian people and should not be able to become prominent citizens. There was also this idea that Black people should stay in their place, so to speak. Is that correct? So to speak. Yep, so to speak. Now, attorney, consultant, and author of a number of books, including Black Wall Street, Hannibal B. Johnson. We've heard from him several times in this podcast. Here's his take on the idea that the Tulsa Race Massacre was planned. You also mentioned the want for the land in Greenwood by corporate interests. In fact, some researchers have suggested that the entire Tulsa race massacre was meant to run Black Tulsans out of Greenwood so that their land could be seized and used for various corporate interests. Is that something that you have found in your research? That argument certainly has some plausibility. And so one piece of evidence would be the minutes from the Tulsa Chamber of Commerce from 1921. As it turns out, just a few months back, the chamber held a press conference at which they donated their minutes from 1921 to the Greenwood Cultural Center, which is an iconic institution in the Greenwood community. And at the press conference, they acknowledged the various acts of commission and omission that the chamber was associated with, this leadership, this business leadership organization was associated with back in 1921. The chamber CEO apologized for the chamber's role back in 1921 and then talked about acts of atonement, what the chamber is doing currently, both internally and externally, to rectify that history. And so in those minutes, there are references to the desire to move the black citizens farther north so that the land could be used for better purposes. There's language like that in those minutes, which supports the argument that there may have been pre-massacre some sort of machinations going on to encourage an event that would move the community farther north. And indeed, When Tolson's decided to rebuild after the massacre, they did encounter legal challenges from people in the community, some corporate interests in the community, who wanted to make it difficult for them to be able to do so. Can you talk about some of those things and some of the heroes that we saw kind of come to the aid of Tolson's? I believe some attorneys who set up shop in tents to represent some of these Black Tolsons who were basically at risk of losing what they had left. 
the main hurdle immediately after the massacre was the city of Tulsa itself. The city worked to extend the fire code into the Greenwood District such that it would be cost prohibitive for most citizens to, to rebuild in their own community. That effort was successfully challenged by attorney B.C. Franklin. B.C. Franklin is the father of the eminent historian Dr. John Hope Franklin, who was professor at the University of Chicago and, and ended up as professor emeritus at Duke University. But B.C. Franklin had his own office destroyed during the massacre, but he set up his office temporarily in a tent to provide legal redress for these kinds of burdens that were befalling Tulsa's black citizens in the immediate aftermath of the massacre. The other point that I would make is that the Tulsa Tribune, I mentioned that daily afternoon newspaper that published a series of inflammatory articles and editorials. Well, just three days after the devastation of the massacre, on June 4th, 1921, the Tulsa Tribune published an editorial about the prospect of rebuilding the Greenwood community. And it was entitled, It Must Not Be Again. And it's a, it's a rather lengthy piece, but the first two lines are telegraphic in terms of the message. Such a district as the old nigger town must never be allowed in Tulsa again. It was a cesspool of iniquity and corruption. So this is, this is a leading newspaper in the city of Tulsa, of which the Greenwood District is a part, saying that such a district as the old nigger town must never be allowed in Tulsa again. Scores of people have just been killed. More than a thousand homes have been destroyed. Millions of dollars in property damage has just been done. Yet the attitude of some of the leadership in the community is that. It's reflected in the Tulsa Tribune editorial. But not everyone was convinced of this. Dr. Scott Ellsworth, who we've also heard from previously in this podcast, is a writer, historian, and University of Michigan Afro-American and African Studies professor. He's also the author of Death in a Promised Land, the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921. This is his take on the theory that the massacre was a planned attack. earlier that there have been a lot of conspiracy theories surrounding the massacre. One of them is that all of this was from a very early point, even possibly before the massacre occurred. And so with that in mind, those people who were going to participate in this massacre were going to do so, in your opinion, whether or not they read a newspaper article. Do you think there's any validity to this idea that this was a premeditated attack? No, I don't. And, you know, the conspiracy theories just go on and on. I mean, a, a popular one that I've heard for 40 years is that actually Dick Rowland wasn't even in the jail to courthouse on the 31st. Earlier that day, Sheriff McCullough, who I guess wasn't there either, had escorted him and Sarah Page to a railroad station where they rode a train to Kansas City 
then lived happily ever after as man and wife in Kansas City. I mean, this stuff goes on and on. But the thing is, you can never disprove a conspiracy theory. If somebody believes in a conspiracy theory, you know, any piece of evidence that you can present that questions that can be just seen as another leg in the conspiracy, yet another layer of trying to do this. Like other people, I just want to know the truth about this. And if somebody can present evidence that, oh, yes, this is a pre-planned conspiracy, you know, please do so, because so far, none of that has shown up. Why does the idea that the attack on Greenwood was planned and the lengths to which Greenwood was essentially cleared out matter? For one, a number of credible voices have said as much over the years, so it must be considered. Secondly, if the Tulsa Race Massacre was a premeditated scheme, I believe that means those responsible could not have carried it out, if not without the help of law enforcement officials, then perhaps with the sanctioning of them by virtue of their silence and inaction during the massacre itself. And indeed, some witnesses to the massacre reported seeing uniformed men carrying out some of the crimes during the Tulsa Race Massacre. At any rate, there were concerted efforts made following the massacre to do exactly what some have said was the real cause of it, which was to push Black Tulsans off of their property. Shortly after the massacre, these efforts were masked by an offer to buy the land from Black Tulsans. And eventually, a city ordinance was changed that would make it incredibly difficult for Black Tulsans to rebuild on their burned property. All of these efforts eventually dissolved, in part from a lack of support to push African Americans out of Tulsa, but also due to the heroic work of a number of Black attorneys who also survived the massacre. In 2015, a previously unknown document was found and purchased from a private seller by a group of Tolsons before it was donated to the Smithsonian Museum. This document was a manuscript, and its author was a man named Buck Colbert Franklin. B.C. Franklin, as he was known among peers, was an Oklahoma lawyer who survived the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, but lost everything in the attack just several months after moving to Tulsa. Of Franklin's four children, John Hope Franklin would become a prominent historian and civil rights advocate. Tulsa's John Hope Franklin Center for Reconciliation is named in honor of him. Now, the senior Franklin's manuscript was donated to the Smithsonian with the support of Franklin's descendants. The manuscript is now part of the collections of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. According to the Smithsonian Magazine, The manuscript begins in 1917, when Franklin meets an African-American veteran named Mr. Ross while recruiting young Black men to fight in World War I. It then picks back up in 1921 with Franklin's own eyewitness account of the massacre. The document ends 10 years later with the story of how Mr. Ross's life had been destroyed by the massacre. Two photos were donated along with the manuscript. One of them is a well-known photograph of Franklin and his associates who had set up shop in a Red Cross tent five days after their belongings were burned to the ground in the Tulsa Race Massacre. Notwithstanding the destruction of Black Wall Street, residents of the district known as Greenwood were able to retain their land despite efforts to relieve them of it and prevent them from rebuilding on it. 
This was in large part because of the efforts of B.C. Franklin, who went to the Oklahoma Supreme Court to defeat a law that would have prevented them from doing so. We'll explain this later with the help of Randy Craviel. But first, here's an excerpt from B.C. Franklin's manuscript. Quote, From my office window, I could see planes circling in midair. They grew in number and hummed, darted, and dipped low. I could hear something, like hail falling upon the top of my office building. Down East Archer, I saw the old Midway Hotel on fire, burning from its top. And then another, and another, and another building began to burn from the top. What? An attack from the air, too? I asked myself. The manuscript goes on to say, quote, As I stood there in contemplation of these and other gruesome facts, I saw two sights that will live in my memory to my dying days. One was a woman on the opposite side of the street. She was traveling south, hair disentangled and disheveled, in the very path of whizzing bullets. She was calling wildly to a little tot that, for a few moments before, had dashed in panic before her and turned off Greenwood on Archer at the corner. I hollered at her. Turn back, woman, for God's sake. Turn back. You will be mowed down. Never turning her head, she answered as she hurried on, I must follow my child. And so she did follow her child, and not a bullet touched her, although they literally rained down the street. This brave, self-denying mother lives today here in Tulsa with that tot, now a splendid young lady, whom she risked her life to save. The other site was occasioned by the Piro building catching on fire from the top. This was a frame building then. The fire dislodged those in the building, a woman, two children, and three men. They emerged in wild confusion and came on in my direction. The little children, they were both girls, outran the others and passed the place where I was standing with the speed of the wind. The woman ran across the street and into the foot of the steps of my office building, right where I was standing and fell upon her knees and commenced to pray, totally oblivious of my presence. I don't think she ever saw me. And such a prayer, she asked God to save her and her children from whom she had just been separated. This prayer was uttered over and over. I am unable to say whether that prayer was answered or not. I have lived in Tulsa continuously ever since that memorable morning, but I have never seen that woman since. I know I would know her if I were to meet her, even today. The three men, one of whom lugged a heavy trunk on his shoulder, were all killed as they were crossing the street, killed before my very eyes. Now we'll hear from Tulsa World reporter and author Randy Crabiel again. He's going to walk us through the efforts of Black Tulsans and their allies to recover and retain their land following the Tulsa Race Massacre. So Maurice Willows was put in charge of managing the relief effort. And over the next several months, Tulsa County allocated $60,000 and the city of Tulsa allocated $40,000 for what was described as relief efforts, which included building materials and some other things. There's about $30,000 
of cash and supplies donated on top of it. So he had about $130,000. And most of that was turned over to him. And initially, there was a committee set up by the Chamber of Commerce. The Chamber of Commerce was so angry at the city officials, the elected officials. On June 2nd, they pretty much just told him, you guys go over and sit in a corner and don't say a word. We're going to do this. They were angry at the city officials for letting the massacre occur. Exactly. And their goal was, we're going to make these people whole. Talking about the African-Americans who'd been destroyed. Their lives had been destroyed. And Um, these are basically Caucasian people, white people in Tulsa, who believe that it is now the responsibility of the leaders in Tulsa, business and otherwise, to get this community back together. Correct. So they're making two appeals. So the first one was that these people have, through no fault of their own, have lost everything. The second one, and I would say the bigger one, was that this is a terrible mark against our city that we're so proud of. Tulsa had a really big ego in those days. They liked to think it was the best thing going anywhere. And so the other argument, and I think it was the main argument, is it's a matter of honor that we make this right. That, you know, that we show that we really are the superior white race and we make this right. I'm sure it varied from individual to individual, and it's hard to know what the real feelings of, of some of the key players were. I'm sure they varied. So this committee was put together, and they were in the process of raising another $100,000 just for starters. And $100,000 would have been a lot of money in those days. A house could be built for $500 to $1,000. And there was some interest with this group in seeing about buying out black property owners, at least some of them, not all of them, but those who own property along the railroad tracks, buying them out and moving them to another location about a mile away. But pretty quickly, the Chamber of Commerce group decided against this, it seems like. And I think a lot of it had to do with they were getting a lot of bad publicity. The black property owners at first were somewhat open to this. Now, again, I'm not sure that any of them wanted to just say, no, we're not going to do it because they'd just been burned out and a bunch of people killed. So, I mean, I think they were probably a little bit cautious about how they approached it. But the Chamber of Commerce group fairly quickly decided they weren't going to do this. If there was somebody who wanted to sell, okay, but we're not going to make a big issue of it. Well, a lot of the, a lot of the African-American landowners in Greenwood, they realized they were getting a raw deal that the price that whoever, that the group who wanted to buy them out was offering would not be fair to them. And ultimately this would not be good for them. Well, eventually, yes. But what happened in the interim was that the mayor and the city council got so upset about being pushed off in the corner that after two weeks, they basically evicted the Chamber of Commerce from their offices in City Hall, and the mayor appointed his own committee. 
In other words, a competing committee to the chamber committee. And the chamber committee resigned and the city's committee took over. And this committee was firmly behind the idea of the buyout and moving these people over. Well, it was pretty much at that point that it became apparent that there wasn't going to be the money to do what this group wanted to do. And they essentially wanted to develop that land, right, into some sort of industrial area. Yeah, they wanted to convert it to warehouses and commercial area because all these railroads run through it. And let me say that, especially as it pertains to what I'd call the original Greenwood, there were reasons from the Black perspective to be interested in moving because you think about it, they had four railroad lines going right through the middle of their community. So basically they they lived in the middle of a rail yard. And while there were some commercial advantages to that, I don't think many people want to live, you know, in the middle of a rail yard, you know, a lot of noise and all of that stuff. And so several property owners said, if you will make us a good enough deal, we'll move. Basically, what they said was, we want to be paid for everything we lost, and we want to be paid what our property is worth or what it would have been worth, and not what it's worth now after, you know, with a bunch of debris sitting on it. And kind of a tip off to what, you know, what the difference might have been there was that at one point, one of the people who was kind of interested in the development said, well, the land right now is worth about $500 a lot as commercial space would be worth $1,500 a lot. Well, the group doing the development, they wanted to pay the property owners the $500, not the $1,500. And they weren't going to pay them for any of their you know, stuff that got burned. So the property owner said, well, okay, we're not going to sell. And, you know, apparently there were some white people in the community who agreed with that position because the group that wanted to move them was never able to raise the money to do it. I have a feeling that if the, quote, right people had been really behind the idea of moving the community, the money would have been found. And one of the people who was on this original committee, and I realize this is confusing, but (laughs) it's what happened. One of the people who was on the original committee, the chamber committee, when they were basically kicked out, he said, well, there's some good people on this new committee and there's some not so good people. There's a certain amount of money that has to be raised and they can't raise it. So this split in the white community resulted in the group that wanted to buy out the the black property owners not being able to raise the money. The city commission tried to help the people who were behind this scheme by extending the city limits and with it the fire code. So in other words, more of Greenwood would be covered by the fire code. And that meant if you were going to rebuild, you had to rebuild according to code. And the theory was that black folks would not be able to come up with the money 
to rebuild according to code. And this was talked about fairly openly, that this was the reason that this was done. Well, guess what? Apparently, these African-Americans had more access to financial resources than the white community maybe imagined because pretty quickly, some African-American merchants began rebuilding. They got building permits and began rebuilding according to code. And then there were others that just started building. They just started building and they said, okay, come and tear it down. And nobody did that. And eventually, at the end of the summer in 1921, the three state district court judges in Tulsa County uh, meeting together in a single hearing ruled that this fire code ordinance was illegal and they threw it out. But there were some people integral in the ruling from Greenwood, some black attorneys who were fighting the fire code while the city was trying to enforce it. Well, that's exactly right. And that was the case that the judges ruled on. There were at least two lawsuits, both of them brought by black property owners, and both of them represented by black attorneys. Now, the one that ultimately prevailed, the attorney that's listed as the lead attorney was white. And and he was sympathetic to the the African-American property owners. But I suspect that all of the real work was probably done by these African-American lawyers, but they got a white attorney to go argue it in front of the white judges. And this is surmise on my part. In other words, it would be easier for the white judges to rule in favor of the white attorney than it would be for them to rule for a a black attorney. And again, that's just my opinion. But at any rate, you know, the full credit has to go to these uh, black property owners and the black attorneys who represented them and probably didn't get paid much of anything because nobody had any money for standing up. They didn't know how many of their neighbors had been killed. This, I mean, this was a pretty serious intimidation. And they stood up and said, no, we're not taking anything less than what we are owed. Now, in the end, I mean, they didn't get what they were owed, but they did get their property and they won their right to remain on their land on their terms. I just wanted to say the names of those attorneys, they set up camp in a tent in a Red Cross tent because their office had been burned down. So they're B.C. Franklin and his partner, I.H. Spears, and their secretary, Effie Thompson, they set up camp outside and literally just worked rather under a tent to help a lot of people in Tulsa keep their property. Well, they were like everybody else. They'd lost everything. I mean, B.C. Franklin had just come to Tulsa a few months earlier and hadn't even moved his family. So he lost everything. He lost his office. Whatever clients he had, they might still be there. They weren't in business any longer. Some of them were getting paid, I guess, if they were 
working somewhere. But I don't know what, if anything, they ever got paid for their work on these lawsuits. And it should be pointed out that they didn't just do these two lawsuits that I mentioned. I mean, they were filing claims against the city, tort claims, and then they eventually would be filing lawsuits against, in some cases, insurance companies, in some cases, the city or other. Basically, they sued everybody they could think of, hoping one of them would, would be allowed. So all of these people just did, you know, amazing work for little or no money. You know, Franklin, his family, his wife was teaching school at a little town, probably 50 or 60 miles from Tulsa. So they needed her to, you know, keep going. And she didn't move to Tulsa for, I think it was seven or eight years. In the next episode, we'll explain the legal fallout from the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, including what, if any, efforts were made to hold those responsible for the massacre accountable. Be sure to check out our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter pages by searching for Black Wall Street 1921. And make sure you also visit our website, www.blackwallstreet1921.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter and keep up with all of our episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Mm -hmm.